Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Cody, I have no idea what we're going to talk about today. Oh, no, I do know what we're going to talk about today. This show's already gotten off to a, a spectacular start. How are you doing? You know, I'm... I'm doing well. I'm ready for the All-Star break. I've always viewed this as kind of like a built-in holiday through the year. Like, throughout high school, I would always get together with my friends. We really took the dunk contest seriously. It was like it was like the best weekend of my life, and I try and recapture that every single year. So I'm, I'm hyped about the weekend, Ben. Are you saying you're ready for our eight-hour live uh, show over the weekend, chronicling the great history of the dunk contest? You know, you know what I've always wanted to do oh with the dunk contest? I don't think you can do it in a podcast. But I've always wanted to do a video breaking down the top 50 dunks of all time in the dunk contest. And here's the thing, Cody. Here's the thing. Before you shake your head and roll your eyes at me out there, uh, as a dunk historian, you see these videos that are up on YouTube of like, hey, these are the best dunks of all time. And those videos are fine. You, you breeze through, you watch them, and they throw all the dunks and the replays. But what is left aside when you look at that video is the context of every dunk because I'm a huge believer in creativity in sort of understanding where we were in the history of the dunk understanding the rules of the dunk contest like there was a period of time where you just had like a 90 second running clock to try to do like as many dunks as you could possibly do um very different than what we have today so uh yeah G go ahead I was shaking my head at you earlier, not in like a rolling my ass kind of way, but like, I don't know why we're talking about anything else. Cause I would like, if we started at the beginning and just did every like dunk contest throughout and discussed the whole timeline of it, that would, that would honestly be the best thing ever. And I think the weirdest <laughs> thing I recall seeing, like, do you remember the wheel from like 2003, oh, yeah. jo Josh Smith had to spin the wheel. And then that's the thing. Like <laughs> he got the, if you got like a dunk that was conducive to your dunking style, if you're a two footed leaper, like Jason, Jason Richardson, one of the all time underrated dunk oh. contest guys, he was a two footed leaper and had a very hard time leaping off of one foot. And so they're like, please, please simulate this uh, Michael Jordan dunk where he jumps off of one foot from the free throw line. And as amazing as Jason Richardson was as a dunker, I mean, the dude went off the glass and then caught it and went through his legs. He, I, I don't know if he could dunk from the charge circle off of one leg. It just wasn't, just wasn't his speed. Yeah, I, I think my Jason Richardson, the one, I think he needs a 50 to win it. He starts in the corner, self-lob to himself, and it's like a, a reverse under the leg throwdown. And the thing about under the legs, Ben. Left-handed, too. We are, yeah, don't forget that. We are that. so spoiled, so spoiled, because I, I think it's like the, the 90s, maybe like J.R. Ryder. Maybe him or Kobe were one of the first to actually throw like a just straight up under the leg dunk. And it was just like, what? what is this witchcraft? Like, how is this happening? And now everyone's like throwing under the leg dunk in a game. And you're like, okay, good job, Amari Stoudemire. That was cool. I remember trying to do that in middle school. We used to have dunk contests on nine foot hoops. Yes. Um, it, my move, I was just jump over things. I would just get larger and larger objects to jump over that would freak my friends out. And then if you could jump over it and dunk it, you'd win. It was kind of like Blake Griffin jumping over the car. Um, that was the highlight of my middle school career right there. The <laughs> but I remember trying to like go through the legs, and Ryder was the first to do it with the East Bay Funk Dunk in 1994. Cody, we're really doing it. We're, we're, we're having a podcast about... <laughs> The, the dunk contest everyone out there listening just must be enthralled um no seriously last point on this though Ryder like legit jumped and then tried to get up in the air and then just throw it through his legs whereas Kobe and many of the other guys after did this um motion as they jump they're bringing it through their legs this is a it's a subtle but meaningful difference when you actually go out and take a ball and try to get the coordination to to put it between your legs this was always my thing with like Dominique Wilkins throwing down because the thing about a windmill, like a lot of windmills that start kind of start on the way up, there was something about Dominique where like he could get to the apex of his jump and it felt like he like held it up before throwing down the windmill. So when you see the windmills, like him and Vince Carter, like the guys that like you could hold it up first and then you bring it down. It's really subtle stuff that adds to the to the majesty of the dunk. Yeah, like Vince Carter inverting his 360, which basically still to this day, most people can't do any justice toward. Also, Vince, no. Vince Carter with a legit through the legs dunk in that dunk contest off the terrible pass by Tracy McGrady. And he <laughs> impromptu went between his legs. How long have we been talking about this? Um, 
not long enough, Ben. It's, this could be the whole episode. Well, well, I mean, it's a good segue to, to sort of evolutionarily insane historical things, which is I was lucky enough last week to be able to call a Victor Wembenyama game for the NBA app. And for those who don't know, uh, Vic is about seven foot four, barefoot. We think he has an eight foot wingspan. Not not seven something. He has an eight foot wingspan. Uh, he is widely considered to be one of the great prospects in NBA history. P- pretty much a slam dunk that he's going to be the first pick in the draft coming up this June, heading into the the 2023-2024 season. And watching him play, he's playing in France right now, um, watching him play, just, Cody, have you seen him? He's just, to me, he's evolutionary Kareem. Like, he is unbelievable in terms of how he moves. Okay, so I, I haven't watched him. I There's too much NBA, Ben. I just, I'll see these guys when they make it to the NBA. That's kind of my philosophy with it. But, but despite, like, the fact that the highlights that I see, he seems to be a very fluid mover, despite being 7'4", or whatever else. Um, is there an aspect of, like, this dude's just a lot bigger and more athletic than people, and that's why he's dominating. Or are you seeing things that's like, oh yeah, this guy's gonna pan out as as an all star superstar or whatever else? No, it, it's a little of both, I think, because he's playing like he's not playing in college, he's not playing against kids, he's playing against men. Some of the guys on the court in that league, like Tremont Waters, um, I think is one of his teammates. He had some time with the Boston Celtics. There's a lot of guys on the floor in that league who have either touched the NBA or played at very high high college levels, and they're 25 or 30 years old. So Vic's size should translate in terms of his shot release and in terms of his shot blocking. I mean, when you have an eight-foot wingspan, I don't even know if he needs to jump to dunk. And then to your point, the way he moves is what makes him such a sort of incredibly transcendent historical prospect because two steps – Cody three-point line up fake two steps he's at the rim dunking laying it in makes it look like a nerf hoop I'm I I can't wait to see this dude on the court with Giannis and to see if he actually makes Giannis look small like that's the degree of what we're talking about when we talk about alien level athleticism with Victor Wembenyama so back in the day I had I don't remember what it was called no, that's the name of a book. I was going to say the name of a book, but that's actually not what it was. It was a collection of DVDs. Uh, for those of you that don't know, a DVD was like a thing you would insert into a DVD player, and it would play. It was like an evolutionary a great, VCR. A great definition to help everyone out there. The, D, the If you've never heard of a tape cassette, it's the thing you put in a tape cassette player. Yeah. I, listen, if you don't know what it is already, the definition doesn't even it's matter. It's a digital right? video disc. That's what it is. A, an evolutionary VCR, basically. And I had this, and it was just like a bunch of... 2000 stars and some of their high school games include guys like i think carlos boozer was in there There there's a couple carmelo anthony games and then there was a couple lebron games and one lebron game i remember from his high school i remember watching the uh the mcdonald's all-american game and even then at that point when i was watching him obviously he was so much more he was like hyper athletic obviously built like a man at that point but the passing ben there's one pass i remember he like catches it midcourt Charlie Villanueva coming down the wing, right? And he throws a complete no-look lob. I don't think he looks at the rim once. A complete no-look lob and just like perfectly with Villanueva. So like you see that and you're like, all right. So even if like the jump shot doesn't pan out, a dude with this athleticism and finishing and this level of brilliance with like the passing, there's no way you're not going to at least be an all-star. Do you see like some of those kind of more subtle skills with Wembenyama or is it kind of like... I, I don't know. Is the defensive instincts enough where you're like, oh, yeah, there's no way this guy isn't already going to be like an all defensive player and whatever else pans out, he's still just going to be that level of defense. Is there something like that you see with him? Yeah, I think the two scuttle, subtle skills are passing where he's not great, but he's a he's a teenager who's had a rapid ascension and he already shows the ability to make certain passes, high low passes, you know, things like that. And then this shot profile where He's he, he's kind of trying to essentially play like Kevin Durant, 
and face the basket from 30 feet away and develop range. And Cody, the man is working on a one-legged running three-pointer. Um, let me say that again. He's seven foot four, and he just sometimes will take a one-legged running three-pointer as this should, as if this should be a normal shot. Like, hey, would you like to try a floater from 26 feet? That's um, that's some of the stuff we're talking about. And I, and I think with him, he, he reminds me of Kareem in the sense of how graceful he is and how big he is and how it feels like a sort of an alien superhero mutant powered machine that now is shooting threes and facing the basket when Kareem played um, totally different back to the basket game. But the other guy is Ralph Sampson, who was a similar sort of look at how he moves. He's so big. And I think with, with Sampson, there were some things that derailed him, but the biggest obviously was injury. And I think that's the concern when you're built this way with Vic. So we'll, we'll talk more about him next season. Obviously we'll talk about him around the time of the draft, but I do think he has both. I think he has some things that could potentially derail a hall of fame kind of career, but he does also have some other stuff in that package that isn't necessarily the savant like skills you would get from a LeBron or a Larry Bird or Jokic or these guys who are um, really excelling, not just from physical explosiveness or size, but from how to play the game, you know, the feel for how to play the game. So he, he, he has a little of both, which is what makes him such an exciting prospect. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. So you're definitely you're definitely high on him. You're like, yeah, this guy should probably go number one. He should probably go number one. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't think that's... <laughs> an outlandish take. Um, I've heard some people say Scoot Henderson, mm. who is the sort of consensus number two pick and also considered an incredibly valuable prospect. These these are names that in theory will become household names, but I'm bringing them up because they get us to our topic today that we wanted to talk about, which is Vic plays... He, there's no post-up sort of centric offenses anymore in basketball. So he doesn't turn his back and play. He, he can go down in the post and in, in the game I called, he went down and got a great seal. Um, you know, you get a mismatch, you get a switch. He flashes under the hoop. It's very difficult to stop. So he can do that, but he's not building his game, nor is that offense for his team built around him having his back to the basket. And as we've discussed recently, part of the change with pace and space and the boom and offensive efficiency and all this stuff is really about, attacking on the perimeter in multiple ways, cutting and moving outside and inside and, and sort of creating pressure points and balance all over the court. Uh, and maybe Scoot and, you know, Scoot Henderson as a guard, maybe a Russell Westbrook comparison is something that you might see with him because of how explosive he is getting into the paint, getting downhill, stuff like that. But Cody, the thing we've been talking about a ton over the last few episodes, or maybe maybe over this entire season, in a sense, is sort of what happens on the perimeter when you catch it, when you're um, in a position to to take advantage of one of the sort of opportunities that your teammates have created for you. How do you extend or finish an advantage that one of these great playmakers in the league sort of sets up now because the game is moving past the simplicity of I, I'm a spot-up shooter. Yeah, and when it's even in the word, Ben. Like, when we think about the word post-up, like, if you think about the verb, like, posting, right? I'm on my post, the noun on my post, right? You're standing there watching something. There's no movement, all right? You're like a sentry waiting for things to happen with nothing happening, and that's kind of what a post-up is, is you set up the, the action early in the offense. You watch 90s ball. You set it up right away. There's 18 seconds on the shot clock. You dump it down. And then they're just kind of standing. It's like, let's figure out what's going on. You let everyone on defense sort of off the hook. And you can change it up a bit. Maybe you can have someone make a cut. Maybe you can have some other kinds of actions. But at the end of the day, there's still a lot of stagnation happening near the rim. 
All right. And so, you know, I think that's the reason why you have these guys moving out closer and sort of going to that that punishing, like you said, getting a seal later in the offense, because that's when the post up game works, because the post up in itself isn't necessarily efficient. But if you can get a mismatch in the post, if you can get a seal closer to the rim, then that finishing ability really works well. So I think, you know, like we've been talking about moving the post up player further out and letting sort of the DHO stuff happening, letting all kinds of other things develop before maybe flowing into a last second post-up is probably the best option for a post-up guy now. DHO's uh, dribble handoff action, and we've talked a lot about the the big man in the middle of the court being pulled out of the paint and constantly being able to serve as a hub for the offense like we've seen with uh, Nikola Jokic and, and players like this. Um, you know, you can get it early. You can you can have that space vacated and get Aaron Gordon just flashing underneath the basket, and then Jokic can make that entry pass because he's pulling the big man out of the paint. So all of these things that we've talked about a ton have changed the dynamics. And when we think about finishing these plays and we think about the role players, the place my mind is going to is really the the three and D archetype and and the spot up shooting on one end um, and being able to stay on the court by providing defensive value on the other end and I think the first question as we talk about the post up that pops into my mind is like did the post up and maybe specifically Hakeem Olajuwon's rockets did they kind of give birth to the idea of like a three and D because now we can have a guy who can play off you but back then it was put the big man in the offensive hub in the post and let the shooter and finisher uh, spot up on the outside. That's that's sort of the first place my mind goes. And it makes sense. I mean, if your offense just, you have somebody like Hakeem, who's maybe, maybe like top three toughest shot makers in the history of the NBA, top five, wherever you want to put him. It just, it doesn't matter. He'll take it and make it. Everyone else in offense doesn't necessarily have to do a lot besides stand there, wait for the double team, wait for the kick out, maybe swing it and make a three. And then on the other end, you just got to lock down and, and defend. So when the offense is sort of built around that stagnation, where the stagnation is the means to the end here, um, then yeah, you don't necessarily need these other skills besides literally being able to catch and shoot and being able to defend your guy on the other end. Yeah, and I I don't want to be um, too simplistic and say like all of 90s offense was stagnant. I don't think that's Mm -hmm. really accurate, but it was a little bit more stagnant compared to what we have now. You could throw it into the post and cut through. You know, the Lakers had this same setup with Shaq and the triangle where you enter it from the wing and then you could potentially cut through and hit the cutter. Someone else can replace where that pass just took place. So if you throw it from the wing and you cut through, another player can come over and serve as an outlet for the post-up player. And and you kind of play like that. It's, it's a little more stagnant, but it's not completely stationary. And, and this got me wondering, Cody, like, who do you think the first 3 and D player was? Because, of course, when you have... Hakeem Olajuwon, when you have Shaquille O'Neal, when you have Tim Duncan and David Robinson, now an easy way to complement them without having to go get other stars and other offensive playmakers is to get a player that can stay on the court and provide defense and then on offense serve as a balancing point to finish the opportunities that these superstars create. And at that point in time, especially with the line being brought in, uh, to the kids' tees in 1995, the NBA, for those who don't remember, brought the line in from about 24 feet to 22 feet even to encourage more three-point shots. And to me, that's when I feel like we started to get the understanding that it's like, hey, if we could get role players to hit threes at a good percentage, now they're adding more value on those offensive possessions. I think going to the actual question of who's the first 3 and D player, I think that's really tricky, Ben. Uh it's, maybe it's like a simple question, but like, how do you how do you determine if someone's a three and D player? Like, what 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 is a D, three and D player? Okay, I think on one hand we're drawing arbitrary lines in the sand, kind of like when we say we're gonna we're gonna look at this guy's scoring and we're gonna completely separate it from his playmaking, and we're gonna look at his playmaking and we're gonna completely separate it from his scoring. We you you probably can't really do that. So in some sense, we are work, working with like a fuzzy boundary, but. On the other hand, I think the the spirit of the question maybe it's a little bit like the Supreme Court's pornography definition. Like we know it, we know it when we see it because it has two components. One, you have to be a positive defender, and sometimes you're out there for your defense, and then you're trying to find a way to stay on the court 
offensively, right? Like Andre Roberson, such a great defender. And all you do is go stand in the corner and shoot threes and occasionally cut and get a rebound and run in transition. And we'll be, we'll be happy. We don't need you to play, make and isolate and run pick and roll and things like that. So to me, that's the, that's the building block of a three and D player. I guess the question becomes, um, you know, do you have to be good enough on defense to qualify? And can you be too good on offense to be disqualified? So I, I was thinking about this. I was trying to put together some kind of a some kind of a definition because there seems to be a point where you're just too good to be a three. Like Kevin Durant can play defense. He can shoot threes. But no one would be like, Kevin Durant's the best 3D player we've ever seen. Right? Of like course. that just seems be- wrong. Because yeah. I think precisely because he has too many of the isolation skills and the on-ball playmaking skills. So pick and roll, live dribble action. And I think this goes back to what we were just saying about like the roots of it, possibly in the 90s around the time of Olajuwon, Shaq, Duncan, Robinson. We'll, we'll, t- we'll talk about some guy. Not Duncan Robinson of the Heat, Tim Duncan and <laughs> David Robinson, the Hall of Fame cheat codes that, that played for the Spurs and won two titles together. But I think when you think about that era, Cody, prospects that were coming in, you know, if we had a Vic Wembanyama back then, we would talk about things like, well, is he a guy that can get his jump shot off in traffic? Is he someone that has a has a good enough dribble to play on the outside and penetrate? As the 2000s came around, can he run a pick and roll and manipulate things out of the pick and roll? And so I think the idea, the spirit of the three and D to me is that those players essentially take that off the table, right? It's not like they could never do it, but that's really not their game. That's not what they do most of the time, and that's not where they create value. So that's kind of how I draw the line on offense. What do you think about that? Yeah, a term that I like to bring up with this, a term I brought up a few times is shiftability, right? The ability for a player to go from one role while on the court and then in that same team context, go up into a different offensive role. Like if you're naturally like a like a fourth option on offense, maybe you can shift up and be more of a two option, right? A second option. But I think these guys can't really shift up and roll. Like if they're a fourth option on offense, they're probably stuck on that fourth option. They can do some stuff. Like I think uh, maybe we'll talk about him a little bit later, but Mikhail Bridges, for instance, he you can throw him in a pick and roll once in a while. He'll get into a space and pull up for a nice little mid-range. He doesn't always get to the rim. He likes to pull up from mid-range more. He can make a pass, but he's not necessarily going to like open up the offense because of it. Like you wouldn't be like, yep, we're going to have a Mikhail Bridges run offense right now and things are going to go great. He can do it once in a while, but he's not necessarily shifting up to that role. So I think that's sort of my definition. You can do these things, but like you can't do them to the point where you're going to rely on these other skills from this guy. Yeah, I think he's probably a perfect example of the fuzzy boundary too, where it's (laughs) like, does he do slightly too many things? Does he try to run slightly too many pick and rolls to really be a three and D player? Maybe. I think there's some other guys we can talk about, um, and maybe we'll come back to that in a second. But even in trying to define the first like real 3 and D player, I've seen some people say Michael Cooper, and I don't think that's a bad thought for the Lakers. But one of my issues with that is like Michael Cooper was way too good of a passer and point guard. Like Magic would miss games, and Michael Cooper would average like 13 assists a game playing point guard and I think if you're that skilled with the ball and running offense and pushing in transition I don't know if that's what I would think of as three and D whereas by the time you get to like the mid late 90s and he might not be the first guy there's a couple other guys we could try to sort of cite as as some of the original or the original three and D archetypes but Dan Marley Mm -hmm. if you look at the way he played right he's like out there to be kind of like a brutish physical man defender and just spot up and shoot threes and Dan Marley's three point rate. And that's a key part of this as well, because you're missing other skills on offense. You have these statistical signals like, Hey, do you notice that this guy mostly takes a ton of three pointers? That's why a true three and D player didn't exist before the nineties because no one used the three point line. So it's like Dan Marley, if you look at his three point rate starting in 1994, Cody, 44% of his attempts were threes. The next year, it was 53%. By 1998, it was 67%. By the year 2000, it was 72%. So it was just more and more threes. The second thing is those threes are uh, unassisted. Excuse me. They're not unassisted because you're not able to self-generate those threes. 
And then the last thing is because you don't really have much of a game and because you're shooting so many threes off the catch that other people are creating for you, your free throw rate will usually be very low because you're not isolation scoring and putting pressure on the rim. And in Marley's case, earlier in his career when he was an all-star, maybe because he had a two-way reputation, he was an all-star in the early 90s in Phoenix, his free throw rate was like 36%, 26%, meaning the total number of attempted attempts of free throws compared to his shots uh, on the court. Then when you keep going, that gets to like 24%, 23%, late 90s, 17%. You know, there's one season where it's 12%. So you, you get these statistical profiles of these guys. And we looked, they don't really pop up until the kind of mid 90s, right? And I was, tr- I was trying to think about it. I was trying to make the case for somebody before the 90s. And like you said, it gets so tough because there, there isn't a three-point line. So, like, by definition, you can't be a 3 and D guy if there's no three-point line. But, I, like, a proto guy I was maybe thinking of, like, I was like, I don't know, maybe it's too much of, like, being bucks-pilled here. But I was like, Junior Bridgman? Is this possibly the guy? But he was, he was probably too good. And even, like, Danny Ainge with the Celtics, he played defense. But he was, again, probably too good in the 80s. But, uh, you know... When we talk about those kinds of 90s offenses where you have a post-up guy, we got a lot of guys spread out. The Olajuwon Rockets weren't the only ones doing that, right? Like when Charles Barkley goes to the Suns, 93, that's another team that heavily relies on that. So Dan Marley fits into that perfect. I also think Danny Ainge is on that team as well. Maybe he's to the point where he's more of a 3 and D guy at that point. But uh, Dan Marley maybe was an all-defensive player. Like, I think he made a team at that time. So that was going to be a guy I was going to go with right away in this context. And before that, I literally don't know if anyone popped up on our on our radar that we were we were casting out. Yeah. Now, mixing my metaphors there, but yeah. Yeah, no, to, to me, these are some of the early guys. Uh, I mean, I think Rick Fox's role that he played on the Lakers next to Shaq kind of ultimately fits this 3 and D. The Jazz had... Uh, David Benoit and Brian Russell next to Stockton and Malone and Brian Russell late 90s emerged um, with those teams that made the finals. He certainly has that Mario Ellie on the Rockets. I've heard some people say Robert Ori on the Rockets. Robert Ori gets Robert Ori gets more interesting because when he was back on the Rockets, like he was really good. Yeah, he he was a far more dynamic player. Um, But there there are a ton of guys in the 90s, including Mario Ellie, by the way, also played on the Spurs with Duncan and Robinson. And then you have Jaron Jackson Sr., the the father of the legendary Jaron Jackson Jr., future defensive player of the year from the from the Memphis Grizzlies. He had this 3 and D archetype. And so you can see the same statistical profile that we just outlined in those guys when you look back at their numbers on basketball reference. But you can also just see it when you watch the game, right? That like that's their game. They're not they're not out there to T- get get into a triple threat, take it off the dribble, hit a 16-foot isolation jumper uh, or playmake. And then after Jaron Jackson, of course, I think one of the guys that a lot of people think about, I would say the standout, the, the person who really put this on the map in what was probably the second generation of 3 and D players was none other than Bruce Bowen, also with the Spurs next to Duncan and Robinson. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire. By famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And, you know, another guy to shout out here, and I think I'm going to use him as a jumping off point for the 90s, guys, but Bryant Stith, I don't know if you you brought him up in this context, but something that I found interesting going back and watching some of him. This is a deep cut. Uh, this is a deep cut, Cody. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're here for, Ben. If we're not going to cut deep, like, what are we cutting for? Uh, so speaking of cutting, though, he, like, this is a guy 
that was able to cut and have some movement. And I think that's a thing that maybe, you know, I'm going to go back and reframe what I was saying before. These guys aren't necessarily all just standing on the perimeter, right? You go back and you watch some some stiff playing, right? And all of these teams from the 80s to the 90s, they do this like, what's called a floppy action. You know, you have a guy down in the paint. You got a couple, you got a stagger screen on this side, one screen on this side. You can kind of choose which way to this go. This is the Reggie, ran- Miller, Reggie Miller special out there. Yeah, yeah. The R- Reggie Miller special. So they, every team ran this. Half the time players would curl out to take a 15-foot jumper. Uh, but Bryant Stith, what's really interesting and what's fun to watch about these shooters, Ben, is when you think about shooters now, it's all about you release on the way up. Really quick release. You don't jump as high. But these guys, it's like the deep knee bend. You get high. When you're at the apex, then you release. It's very like the release is almost Steve Nash-like, except you have like this Derek Fisher like dipping down and jumping up and shooting. I don't know. I found that interesting. Just the way that these shooters are shooting has also changed. And I think that's really fascinating to watch. Derek Fisher, another 3 and D guy right yeah. on cue next to sort of the gravity of Shaq and Kobe in those early 2000 Lakers teams. And I, I guess Fisher came back for the late 2000s Lakers teams as well. So yeah, ton, ton of ton of old names. And, and it's kind of as we've said, hard to like really pin down who's three and D and, and who's not. But I think when you get into the second generation, the spirit of it, Bruce Bowen, Shane Battier, another guy, right? Um, James Posey. And of course, James Posey had tremendous success in multiple spots. Just being able to be a spot up three point shooter, guard multiple positions, go to small ball looks, Raja Bell, how about that for another guy? Uh, and and Raja Bell is another guy who could cut and kind of you know dive to the basket when needed and things like that. But you also had you know certain teams that it just felt like they had a factory of these players to fit around. <laughs> you know the Spurs would like like what's going on with the Spurs? They had uh, they had Bowen. They had was Devin Brown ever on the Spurs? I thought he was. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Ime Udoka. Um, you know, Keith Bogans, when he was later in his career, played very much 3 and D on the Spurs. And then, of course, Danny Green, who they drafted. And D- Danny Green, Danny Green kind of, maybe he's the end of the second generation, right? Like, maybe he bleeds into the platonic ideal of what we would think of as classical 3 and D. I was going to say, Danny Green, like, if there's a statue somewhere of a 3 and D player, it's probably Danny. I think he's the epitome of what a what a 3 and D guy is. Fun fact, I think Devin Brown, now that I'm thinking about it, he might have been the guy that turns the ball over to give it to Tracy McGrady to cap off his 13 points in 33 seconds. I think I think he's the guy that, right. that turns it over. But uh, what's really interesting, I think, about the second generation, which is, is different from the first generation, and I think even, like, more um, contemporary 3 and D guys, is this huge emphasis on the corner three, Ben. Because you look at somebody like Bruce Bowen, 83%, (laughs) 83% of his threes were corner threes in 2004. 83%, like when you joke about people just standing in the corner, that's kind of what Bruce Bowen did. And it's super weird because you look at his free throw percentage and like, I think he like basically shot better than three at from three than he did from the free throw <laughs> lines at time. It it didn't make sense. He was like PJ Tucker before PJ Tucker just standing in the corner. Yeah, he actually I think he actually got that up into the nineties, ninety percent of his threes <laughs> at some point in one of those years I was looking at. But um to me that is like the quintessential this player is doing nothing else but to be out there and excel defensively. And on offense, the most value we can get from him is to stick him in the corner where it's shorter, 22 feet. And if you're going to stay in the corner, I think organically you're going to move less in most most situations because you're not flying around the arc. You're not cutting in and out. You're simply sitting in the corner as an outlet valve um, where you can maximize your sort of points per shot, right? And to your point, Bowen, I don't remember what it was, but he was like a 50 or 60-something percent free throw shooter, and so he was able to work on this shot without actually being a good generalizable shooter at basketball. Like, when he came along, I think the Heat had him in their camp a ton of times. He played a year for the Celtics and was really good, and before he finally stabilized on those Spurs championship teams, it's just another one of these players where you're like, man, he's such a hawk defensively. 
I love what he provides. He's a role player. He doesn't take anything off the table. But also, boy, he doesn't add anything to the table when we go to eat dinner for offense. It's really a disaster. Like, he doesn't even have silverware or napkins. He's just reaching blindly for food with his hands. Let's give him the corner three. And to his credit, he developed that corner three. Uh, that, to me, is the traditional archetype. Which, which, which brings us to where we are today, Cody. And really where kind of my head has been... I I think for most of this year, if you've been following our videos or this podcast, we've had a number of episodes about this kind of thing or allusions to this kind of thing. Are we at a place now where three and D players are evolving? Are we at a place now where there's like an evolutionary step forward with three and D players where they're doing more things than they ever have before? Interesting. So what you're what you're asking is like these guys are do like the Mikhail Bridges we brought up before, right? Not necessarily being the guys that run the the complete offense, but besides just shooting threes and playing defense, they have some of these other skills. Maybe they can attack attack closeouts. Maybe they can throw a pass once in a while. Um, and I think that closeout attacking, as you as you nod to me as I say this, I think that's really the key, and that's that's really what keeps the defense on their toes. Because if you're just a shoot guy, right? If you're only out there to shoot threes. It's easy to close out on you because that's it. You close out on a guy and boom, that's it. You maybe have one dribble to the side and that's about all you have in the rest of your bag. But if you can blow by someone because they're closing out too quickly and then make a play, that makes you so much more dangerous. And you don't even need like a fully developed game. You just need to be able to get your head down, get into the paint and, and find somebody else that's open. And I think that was like the secret to the to the beautiful game Spurs is that all of them were able to, you know, just keep that ball rolling and pinging around based off the, the drive and kick mentality. We, we have talked recently, we had a video about attacking off the cat or so-called stampeding, well, you need to be able to put it on the floor and dribble to do that. And so I think the, the, the next set of skills that we're seeing, and we'll talk about some players and some instances where this is already relevant this season, but the next set of skills to me, Cody, is something as simple as dribbling, right? <laughs> putting, it, putting it on the deck and being able to do stuff while you dribble, either be a threat to score as you're flying downhill into all this open space after you've created an advantage or being able to pass off the dribble. And I think those two things, the extra passing or the sort of attacking closeout package, if you will, the, the stampede, go on the catch, up fake and go, whatever it is, when you blend that in with the spot up shooting, now to your point, you have a curveball that you can mix in with your fastball. It's not just always the same pitch over and over and over again. So when you get a closeout to the shooter, I think we saw this in the Eastern Conference Finals with the Celtics and uh, our beloved P.J. Tucker is just always playing in conference finals. Um, you certainly probably experienced it the year before as a Bucks fan uh, against the Suns and in other parts of the playoffs. Like, yes, Tucker's great from the corner, but if you can run him off the line and force him to put it on the deck and go inside the arc, it's a little bit of an adventure. Um, he's tried to develop that floater. I don't think it's very good. He's not really going anywhere with the dribble, and he doesn't pass well in those situations. So maybe the evolutionary 3 and D guys that we're going to talk about in a second, all of a sudden having those skills where they're dangerous or more dangerous when you run them off the line, this is the next wave of what's happening with this kind of archetype. Ooh. I really like that. That reminds me, there was, there was an article, I don't remember who wrote it back in like 2009 or something, that, that described Manu Ginobili as being like, his spot is being chased off his spot, so he just necessarily is a most dangerous player, because there's no way you can play him, because he's just going to counter in a certain way. So I, I really like that idea, that the counter itself becomes the action that people are going towards. Um, do you think? Do you think there's any player right now that's like, a traditional three and D guy that's still getting minutes. Like who do you, who do you think of if we're talking about like that doesn't necessarily have these skills or that you would like to see some of these skills developing more? Well, PJ Tucker, I think is still getting minutes as a, as a traditional three, three and D guy. Um, I do think there are more traditional type of three and D players, even someone like Contavious Caldwell Pope in Denver. Although the cool thing with him is, just like some old 3 and D players that we alluded to earlier, 
if you start to cut more and more and more and more, now you can mix up your spot up threat and sort of the the gravity or the value that comes with standing behind the line when your superstar is being double teamed. If you can mix that up with cutting and your superstar is a great passer, now you essentially start to create the same sort of curveball, fastball, change up, balancing, pressuring point system uh, because you're either going to hit a three or you're going to get a back cut. But I do, I do think there are more traditional guys. What did I say? PJ Tucker. Um, yeah. I mean, your favorite player of all time, Matisse Thibault, fits this perfectly, right? Like he is truly. Does he? Well, he's trying. To, that's the only thing he's trying to do. He's trying to stand in the corner and shoot threes. This is this is a player who will shoot threes, um, very much in that Andre Roberson. Like when he went to Portland, and it was one was his first game, second game. I, I can't remember, but he's oh. playing the Lakers. They're just like we're gonna play. We're gonna play five on four, and. Matisse, you can stand in the quarter. We're not even just going to guard you. And what did he, what did he hit? Four of six from downtown? Something like yeah. that. Along with blocking corner three-point attempts, that dude was just out there causing chaos. Yeah, like, great job. But I, I think there are plenty of guys like that. I think Dorian Finney-Smith, who, who I love, um, I think he still has more of that sort of, uh, I'm going to defend, and then most of what I do is spotting up behind the line. Nod, Najee Marshalls, well, he, he attacks a little bit more, so that would be an interesting one to think about. But... You know, there, there, there are certainly guys that I stink, think still have that more traditional three and D skill set, but it gets really fun when you talk about the players we've brought up lately on this show and in videos of like, who all of a sudden Josh Green of the Dallas Mavericks is up faking and putting it on the deck, coming down toward the bucket at ninety miles an hour. And you don't know whether he's going to make a kickout pass that looks like, you know, he looks like uh, Ja Morant skipping it into the corner or if he's going to finish at the basket with an and one. You, you don't know what's happening because those guys can dribble and still be so dangerous uh, in those sort of high speed advantage situations. You brought up one guy that I want to linger on. Here Josh Green. No, I mean, oh, we shucks. Can, man, that dude can throw it down. The passes he makes, the ferocity, Josh Green rules. His former teammate is who I want to talk about, who you just said. I want to talk about Dorian Finney-Smith for a second. Because this is a guy, like, if you look at your database, thinkingbasketball.net, about 40% on wide open threes over the last three years. And he loves taking his threes, right? Like, DFS will always take a wide open three. He'll always take a three when he's taking it. Great defense, super long. This is like a super lanky type of guy. But when you look at some of the, like, creation numbers... For instance, the box creation metric in your database, which is like how many shots per 100 possessions are you creating for your teammates? He's making, he's creating 0.3 for his teammates, which in your database is the zeroth. That's not good. Zero, yeah. zero, percentile. <laughs> his pass rating, 3.1 in your database. It's the 20th percentile. But here's the thing that's weird about him, right? The way that we're talking about the sort of evolutionary aspect of it, you're like, okay. So a player like this needs to develop some other skills. You need to be able to to attack off the dribble and stuff like that. This is a guy that last year in the playoffs on a Western Conference Finals team, he's playing 38 minutes a game. He has a plus 15 and a half on off, a plus 3.9 on rating based on basketball references metrics. I find him to be kind of strange because I think in transition, you know, he brings a lot of value in transition because he's so long. He can throw it down easily. He can finish like that. He's a good enough cutter. I wouldn't like call him out as being like a top tier cutter. He tries to like get into the paint and do stuff. He has sort of a little floater that he ends up going to that I don't think is particularly accurate. So why does somebody like him seem to thrive? And do you think that's just kind of a byproduct of being Luka Doncic's teammate during the playoffs? Yeah, I mean, uh, he's a great defender. I think that's where most of it comes from. And he's also willing to shoot a ton of threes. But are, what are you confused about here? Why he's so good? Yeah. So the thing that confuses me about him is that he doesn't seem to have a lot of the evolutionary aspects. He's like a pretty classic. I shoot threes. I play really good defense. But when it comes to like putting the ball in the court and, and driving and attacking closeouts, he's pretty below. He's pretty subpar comparatively to the other evolutionary three and D. Yeah, guys. but I think he makes up for it on defense and lineup versatility because for him, the evolutionary component is I can guard the four. I can guard the three. I can play five in the small ball. Oh, I'll guard your one. I'll go to the point of attack and put length on the ball. And that's what Dallas did with him last season. So I think he's just an example of someone who's maybe more modern in how versatile he is, uh, mostly because of his defense. 
But, you know, Grant Williams is an interesting player. He's he's learning to dribble this season. He's not just about the corner three anymore. Like, he can up fake, put it on the deck and go. And then when I think about the real guys, to me, these newer, younger players coming into the league who still kind of fit this traditional 3 and D structure and... And I think this part's really important, Cody, when we when we talk about this archetype as a complementary player on offense. Most of these players, they're not you're not really looking to Kawhi Leonard them. You're not really looking to say, well, maybe he's three and D as a rookie, but you just wait two years until he gets his jump shot down. And like I was thinking about Jamari, Jabari Smith of the Rockets, who in some capacity you could say is a three and D player right now. Of course, he's not, he's a rookie, he's not super effective, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea for Jamari Smith is clearly to be able to develop his handle a little bit more, use his size to self-generate shots. As we just talked about, the 3 and D archetype, the idea is that you're amplifying the advantage or capitalizing the advantage that was just made for you by your superstars. So let's stick with the Mavericks. Reggie Bullock, to me, is traditional 3 and D. He doesn't attack or isn't as dangerous on the dribble. Tim Hardaway maybe sits in between because you can actually run some like on-ball offense with Tim Hardaway. But again, I don't think he's a guy that gets a ton of stuff going downhill. Whereas Josh Green, he touches the paint. He brings that sort of extra geometric dimension of like, I'm not just going to sit behind the line. I'm going to be able to get into the teeth of the defense. And because I can dribble and I'm so athletic, I can finish or play make. Our favorite player these days around here, Quentin Grimes. Another second-year guy who I think embodies this same archetype perfectly. Like, he's 3 and D, but he also puts it on the deck. He attacks closeouts. He cuts. He goes on the catch. He passes. He finishes. Great, quick decisions. Very hard decisions. uh, hard, Hard actions and quick decisions. And he gets out in transition because these guys are so fast. And I think just this young wave of players. Um... Josh Kogi, I don't know how much Suns you've been watching lately, but it feels like he's starting to do this more, and that's adding an extra dimension to what he provides as this year's sort of uh, Jay Crowder role for them, right? Like it's it's adding more of this live dribble, closeout, passing, playmaking dimension once someone else has created an advantage. E- even guys who aren't great shooters like Herb Jones, I feel like have this in their game. Uh, Trey Murphy the third can potentially have this in his game in New Orleans. There's just a lot of young and exciting players who kind of fit this bill to me. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Listen, listen, I don't need to watch a lot of Suns this year to know about Josh. Like, as as an acolyte of the chaos defense, Josh Okogie has been very much on my radar for, for a while now. That dude is, I mean, if, if someone were to be, like, nicknamed Crash after Gerald Wallace, that, that guy would be it. But what, what I would do, did want to say is I really like the idea that you brought up, that you can also be... Uh, what, what was the word? Evolutionary. Evol- an evolutionary 3 and D guy on the defensive end, too. Okay, because when you think about him, I think there's a couple classes, there's a couple, a couple groupings of 3 and D types of players. So you have these guys that aren't, not, like, they can kind of maybe put it on the floor once in a while. You don't want to trust them doing that. That's like the Grant Williams. That's like the Dorian Finney-Smith, like we were saying. But then there's these other guys that I think you can put the ball in their hands and they'll do stuff a little bit more advanced. Like Mikhail Bridges, I think is about as topped out as you can be in this role. You can put the ball in his hands. He can run a pick and roll. He can attack a closeout. I think OG Ananobi is just a little bit below Mikhail Bridges there. I don't think he's quite as good of a passer. He's not as good of a pull-up shooter. Like he, once he gets into the paint, there's not quite as much that he's able to figure out like Mikhail's able to. So I think it's interesting when you start thinking about them grouping it that way. But then there's also players like, man, we were going through some of it and like De'Anthony Melton, does he count as a 3 and D guy? Because to me, he doesn't even... I, I feel like I'm expecting these guys to be a little bit bigger. And he feels more on the defensive side, but he's still shooting 30% from three and a tremendous defensive player. So we also have these guys that are just hawks on defense that are causing chaos all over the place. So it's interesting how like 3 and D seems to have like 
different categories within 3 and D. What about Bruce Brown? Where would you put him in this conversation? Wow. I mean, because he feels like a traditional 3 and D guy in terms of saying, here's our championship, Denver Nuggets right now. Here's our championship rotation, top six or seven guys. Bruce Brown is clearly in some of those lineup permutations. What does he do? Plays defense, plays versatile defense, switches, but then cuts away from the ball, shoots threes, mostly from the sort of break and down, that corner spot, has become way more confident with with his ability to shoot threes. And he's skilled enough that when you get him in the right situation on a little handoff, closeout, downhill, he'll make the right little pass for a lob or a layup or something. Uh, It just feels to me like, at least in my head, he's also in this expansive sort of next next phase of the 3 and D archetype. I think he's the next phase because, like you said, there's so much positional flexibility. I think Zach Lowe last year used to just say he was his own position. Like He's like, oh, Bruce Brown is playing center. It's like, no, he's just playing Bruce Brown. And <laughs> I think that's part of it, too, is you don't necessarily need to have these other traditional skills. It's just like you can kind of go out there and it, it, it works out like as, as reductive as that might sound. Like you're able to figure out a position for yourself out there. Like you're not just pigeonholed to these two skills of playing defense and shooting threes, which like you think said, I think Reggie Bullock is a really good example of like in the nineties, that's a very traditional three and D guy. Like he's a good enough defender. I think he's a solid chaser. That's probably a skill that he's good at on defense. He's good at chasing guys around screens, but you're not necessarily going to want him guarding your fours or your ones or anything like that. But twos and threes. Yeah. Great man defender. Well, well, let me ask you this. Do you think what we're seeing is sort of a response to all of the heliocentrism that's that's risen, the, the pace and space, the spread the floor, use the three, more guys than ever have the basketball in their hands and are playmaking? Is this, what's the word I'm looking for? Is this, is this symbiotic with the style of basketball that we're seeing. And that's why we're requiring more than just spotting up. And you mean symbiotic in the sense of like, all right, if my teammate is going to be a helio guy, absorb so much that I need to be able to do more than just stand in the corner. Shoot. I need to get, I need to respond in other ways. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Along, along with the space, right? Because spread Mm -hmm. the floor. So we have more space to attack. And we've talked about it a ton on this show, the Mike D'Antoni episode, Mike Prada episode. We've talked about sort of cutting and passing and moving into open high value space. And so if the floor is going to be structured like this and you're going to have more Trey Youngs, Luka Doncic, uh, Spencer Dinwiddie spread the floor, like on and John Moran, on and on and on and on, then this skill set seems to be more symbiotic with that. That's what I mean by that. Yeah, and I think... I think something else we're seeing, and we've talked about it a lot, is just like the flexibility of offenses and the way that they don't necessarily like, like when you think about Helio, when we think about like traditional Helio, you can sort of start to scheme against it in the playoffs because you know what's going to happen. It's like, oh, James Harden's going to pound the rock and we, I mean, James Harden is hard to stop because he's one of the greatest offensive players ever, but we kind of know what needs to happen to stop him. But if we have a bunch of guys who A, are able to sit next to Helio guys and, and fit in with them, that means we also have guys that are skilled enough to play a different style of basketball. If we need to change it up and add some other kind of movement and other kinds of sets, they'll be able to respond because they can do more than just stand in the corner and shoot a three. Yeah. Yeah. We looked at some data, by the way, uh, you had a query on basketball reference, looking at players with, you know, over 50% three point attempt rates and under 30% free throw rate. Some of the things we're talking about, earlier in the show and none of those players basically pop up until 1996 if you also include uh i think you had a defensive box plus minus of over 0.5 so we get get just get rid of all the shooters all the all the todd days and jj reddicks and all those guys who are like yes we're, we're shooting a lot from the outside um that's our game so the, the three and d kind of statistical footprint doesn't really show up until the mid-90s, as we discussed. And then we start to see a rise in the 2010s in those players. But but Cody, in the last few years, you know, we were looking at sort of five-year rolling number of players that fit this statistical footprint. Um, 2019, 2020, up, th- up through this season, we're really starting to see more and more and more of these kinds of players. And so, again, to me, 
in conjunction with all of the X's and O's and stylistic and strategic changes that we've seen that have been rapid in the last seven or eight or nine years, it makes sense to me that this new wave of young players has an extra layer of skills. Like, like is Keegan Murray, is Keegan Murray, like he might just be too complete as a player, but when he's out there with the Kings, his ability to, you know, do other stuff and pass and make extra passes and put it on the floor instead of just shoot. This, this really gives your complimentary quote unquote role players on offense uh, another dimension without having them need the classical package or skill set of an offensive star in today's game. And looking at the numbers, what I think is really fascinating, you said the first one doesn't really pop up until 1996 or whatever, but using those rolling five-year numbers, 2007 is the first time that the rolling five-year is up past 10. That's the first time we see double digits. And then just a couple of years later, 2010, it's up to 25. So it's almost doubled in those couple of years. And now what we're looking at, 2022 season, we're up to about 38. I wouldn't be surprised if by the end of the season or the next couple of seasons, we start approaching 50. Because like you said, like everyone's just expanding out in the 90s. You're shocked by how many people are spotting up 17 feet away from the basket. But now you're taught to be able to put the ball in the deck. You're taught to be able to space out to three. Like you, you referenced so many times from Mike Prada, the spaced out natives, these players are just so used to being able to play in space that I, I don't know. I'm interested to see what the upper end of this is because I don't, not every player, maybe every player can be this. I don't know, Ben, is there a place where every NBA player can slot in as your, as a, as a three and D type of guy? Well, I think my final thought, and by the way, you mean, th- you mean 38 players that fit that statistical qualifier yes, on yes, basketball yes. reference, right? And I think you also had 1500 minutes played as a cutoff. So we're only talking about like top seven, top eight rotation players. So to have almost 40, you know, that's like 20% of the league or something. Um, To answer your question, I think this is the note to leave this on for me and, and we'll just let it simmer on the back burner for, for, for a few years and come back to it as needed. I actually wonder how many of the old traditional three and D players there will be with all these new young spaced out natives coming in. Because as I said, even, you know, outside of just being an incredible defender, outside of the Matisse archetype where it's like, you're an incredible defender, but you can't really do much else. So literally we're just hoping you can Bruce Bowen it in the corner from three. Most of the other players coming in, Cody, I mean, Grant Williams is such a fascinating example because you would think that would be him, but if he can, he's continuing to add, you know, the dribble game, closeout game, if he can add a little bit more, all of a sudden you might be talking about a league where it's hard to get on the floor if you don't have those skills. In other words, those are the table stakes that are required to play the game at this point going forward because of how great offense is, because of how dynamic and quick hitting the sets are out there, um, and because of how much easier it is to guard stationary players on offense especially in the postseason yeah and whoever can fit into the 0.5 offense you know you make a decision in 0.5 seconds you either shoot or dribble whoever fits best into that seems to be the guys that are just going to make it in the league well i'm going to go watch some uh quentin grimes and josh green (laughs) highlights do you have any other final thoughts on this man you weren't going to go crush some dunk contest tape like i thought i'd go back and maybe start with the dominique jordan battle then maybe i don't know jump ahead levine aaron gordon uh i mean vince Car- the thing about vince carter's dunk contest ben is is tracy mcgrady and steve francis are just criminally underrated in what their dunk contest performance was but they just went against they just went against the go you really weren't lying when you said you could do eight hours on the dunk contest i actually i got so deep into the the trey murphy the third sauce here right now that i forgot we even <laughs> talked about dunks today i'm just thinking about closing out and making extra passes and and uh, all that all that connective tissue offense that's so fun man i can i can tell you about the time Dwayne wade and lebron james were in the skills challenge and they were just kind of taking it easy that that sort of hurt my soul if you're if you're going to be participating in all-star saturday night ben you got to be giving it you got to be giving it your all this, this is just the best this I, is the best. i can tell you want to do this so i'm gonna before we wrap <laughs> who's your pick for the dunk contest and the three-point contest this weekend. Wow. 
can I disappoint you and say that I don't know the three-point contestants off the top of my head? I think you've disappointed everyone today, and we're going to leave the show on that note. <laughs> uh, if you want to support this podcast and everything we do, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. I think I think last week, Cody, I said check out patreon.com slash thinking podcast. <laughs> that's, that's when we knew we were really drunk at the end of an episode. Um, we don't drink during the episodes. We mean drunk on basketball, but... Patreon's the best way to support us. That's where we have our database of stats, both historical and throughout the season that we reference on these shows and then help us record videos. Patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We also have our monthly Q&A in our Discord community. That's coming up shortly. Always a lot of fun to get great questions that don't make it on this show. Hope hope you enjoyed this one. I'm going to go ruminate more about three and D players and closeouts. And if anything, I'm going to throw on some Bruce Bowen footage from 2005 after this. So as always, wherever you're listening from, I hope that you are having a great day.